0: As Evan and Caroline have read for us our text this morning or the first 25 verses in Genesis chapter 1 in 2018, we center ourselves in the Word of God as an emphasis. For the spring semester, we're going to be looking at the first 11 chapters of uh, the book of Genesis, trying to think carefully about how He has spoken and what He has revealed to us that really sets the stage for all of Revelation from Genesis to Revelation and it guides us as believers as we see Christ present even in these first 11 chapters. One of the rites of passages for boys, I'm not really sure that this translates to young girls. I I, I wouldn't know. Don't have young girls to, to be able to test this out on. But I know boys go through a playground rite of passage around six years old, seven-year-olds. Usually it's kindergarten, first grade. And it really revolves around trying to get a pecking order of whose dad is the strongest. It's an important conversation to have. And and it goes like this. Hey, ma'am, my dad can beat up your dad because my dad is a firefighter. Uh Uh-uh, uh-uh. My dad can beat up your dad because he's a police officer. No, my dad can beat up your dad because he's in the army. No, my dad can beat up your dad because he's a pastor. I have to voice that because my boys have never been able to say that. And so this is the only contest. They've got to go really back. They've got to regress back. They have to kind of say things like, my dad was a backup quarterback for his high school football team, which just doesn't ring well in that (laughs) playground context there. First 25 verses of Genesis chapter 1 is a playground contest. Now, the playground is not 21st century Controversies over evolution, intelligent design, that, that's not the playground. The, the first uh, the ancient Near Eastern playground that these first 25 verses are spoken into is a battle between what creation account is actually true. You see, during the oral tradition that is behind these first 25 verses, and even the codification of, of Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 through 25, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, there were other rival creation accounts that were vying for influence. And the other, uh, you know, really rivaling uh, creation myths that were, were floating around. And so you have in one corner the Egyptian creation accounts. You have in another corner the Babylonian creation accounts. You have in another corner the Canaanite Creation accounts. And then in this corner, you have the authoritative Word of God speaking into how it actually came into existence. What is the true, authentic creation account? And in many ways, this is a Mike Tyson right hook to these other foes. Now, we don't have the time, nor do we really need to become experts on Canaanite, Egyptian, Babylonian creation myths to understand Genesis chapter 1. But it is important to sort of contrast, to compare and contrast at least just one. So so we'll we'll let one of the foes come out of the corner and we'll size him up a little bit. So so you can see how this creation account that you find, the authoritative word of God, it, it compares and it really strikes down some of the prevailing viewpoints of that ancient Near Eastern world. So the Babylonian creation account, you can read about this. This is not speculation. In the Enuma Elish, you have two gods that exist by themselves. One is the god of fresh water, Tiamat. The other god is the god of salt water, Apsu. There is nothing. Their waters commingle together and then they have children were gods. One of the gods was Ea. That god was the god of wisdom, the god of guidance. Uh, The other gods, or one god is named Marduk, that's the brother of Ea. Now, Tiamat, the father in this Babylonian creation account, gets tired of being a dad. Dad, so you've ever gotten tired of being a dad? Does it get a little frustrating? Well, in the Babylonian creation account, this dad takes it to the absolute extreme and says, I'm tired of being a father, so I'm going to kill my kids. He plots it. One of the sons finds out about it, preemptively strikes his dad dead. Mom, Absu, is really upset about this. Rightfully so. My husband's dead. Your father's dead. I'm going to retaliate. Now, Ea, the god who strikes his dad dead, says, I'm no match for mom. You know, most, most, that's a good life lesson that you can know right there. <laughs> Kids, you know, Babylonian creation accounts have truths in them. You're, you're no match for mom. And so, so Ea, this, this son of, of Tiamat and Absu says, I'm no match for mom, but I'm, maybe one person is, and that was Marduk, the brother. And they said, Marduk says to his mom, I'll fight you. But it is a battle for all. Winner takes it all. So whoever wins this gets all of the creation, all the cosmos, gets everything. So there's just this fiery, bloody, gory, violent battle between Marduk and his mother. Marduk strikes her dead, slices her in half, and out of the top half of his mother, he creates the heavens. Out of the bottom half of his mom, he creates the earth. Now, I tell you this because these creation accounts, this Babylonian account, the Egyptian account, the Canaanite account, they're floating around. And so under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, when we get the account, notice the contrast between what was floating around and what actually happened. It is the creation of the heavens and the earth a result Of God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit in this cosmic fight against one another? And the answer is no. Is it there's this grand, gory battle? And the answer is no. Well, what is the creation account in the Bible? It is the originating, powerful voice of God who speaks. Now we know that God, the Father, is speaking. We know that the Spirit is there in Genesis chapter 1, hovering above the brood of waters there. We know from John chapter 1 and Colossians that the Son of God, Jesus Christ, is present in creation in the Word. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. and The Word was God, and in Him all things were created. So Father, Son, Holy Spirit, they're there in Genesis chapter 1. But there is no fiery, cosmic battle that then births the heavens and the earth. No, it is the sound of creation coming forth from God the Father's voice. Hebrew poetry doesn't rhyme. It's not not a Dr. Seuss kind of rhyme. You don't have hat and cat and bat and all of those kinds of things going on in Hebrew poetry. So to get emphasis with Hebrew poetry that Genesis 1 is, you have repetition. So what is repeated is what is emphasized. What is repeated in these first 25 verses, well, it's clear. Look in your copy of God's Word. Verse 3, God said. Verse 6, God said. Verse 9, God said. Verse 14, God said. Verse 20, God said. Verse 24, God said. So the sound of creation is not the sound of a conquering God slicing the foe, creating the heavens and the earth, but rather it is the originating, creating voice of God and there is nothing and there is something. More than that, we have not only His voice as originating, but His voice defines things. Notice in your copy of God's Word, verse 5, God called. Verse 8, God called. Verse 10, God called. So the entire verbal emphasis in the first 25 verses of the Bible, is a speaking, active God. At His voice, what was not is. What wasn't present becomes. Now, Dawson, what you need to understand from these first 25 verses of the Bible is that God speaks and things happen. God speaks and things change. What wasn't is at the sound of God's voice, and this is the good news, that that God from Genesis chapter 1 is the same yesterday, today, and forever, and He still speaks. And as He speaks in the words of the Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, we read in 2 Timothy chapter 3 verse 16 that all Scripture is what? It is breathed out by God and it is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. So that word, or really that phrase, breathed out, in the original language of the New Testament, it is actually a word that means the air that is physically expelled out of the lungs of God. So as God speaks in Genesis chapter 1, What Paul is telling us is that God speaks in his word, and as God spoke in Genesis 1, what wasn't becomes. So as God speaks in and through his word, what wasn't becomes. So so this is the power of his word. It is an originating, creative word that speaks into your life and to my life, and it changes things. I mean, Paul gives just a little bit of things that it changes. He says that when His Word goes forth, it is profitable. What is it profitable for, Paul? For teaching. It reproves. It corrects. It trains. So His Word does something. His Word moves. His Word changes. His Word molds. His Word corrects. Do you know that? Do you know people... Who are all talk and no action. Talk, 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 talk. Nothing changes. You know people that have all these grand aspirations to lose 40 pounds. And that's gone by like January the 5th. Talk, 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 talk. No action. People at work that say, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this. No follow through with it. All of us are a little bit like that, but, but God in His originating creative voice He speaks and things happen so there's power in His word and we must understand this. There's power in the word to change lives. There's power in the word to heal marriages. There's power in the word to give guidance. There's power in the word to comfort the broken hearted. There's power in the word to provide hope. There's power in the, world to, in the word to topple any and every earthbound prejudice. His word Word works, and his word does something. Jim Saluda, he's a name you probably don't know. 1977, he's a traveling salesman for Kodak, finds himself in Massachusetts. Life is unbearable for him. He's contemplating suicide in a a Sheraton Inn there in Massachusetts. He comes to the end of his rope. He has been in a hotel room like that hundreds of times, hundreds of times. He's checked in and he's checked out and he's ignored this little red bound Gideon Bible that sits in the nightstand beside him. He ignored it hundreds of times but that night was different. He opened it up There on contemplating suicide there, when when he's contemplating the note that he's going to leave in that hotel room, he opens up a note from God in Scripture, from Genesis to Revelation. I don't know what passage he turned to, but there was something about the Word of God that began to speak in his life, and he gave his heart to the subject of the very Word of God, the Word of God, Jesus Christ. And this is what he says about it. Uh, he, He says, The Gideon Bible, in the drawer... At the Sheraton Inn in Sturbridge, Massachusetts, room 312. It changed and saved my life. Well, the ink didn't save his life. The red binding of that Bible did not save his life. The pages that those words were printed on did not save his life. But what saved his life was the subject of the book. And that is Jesus Christ. One who has spoken. One who is speaking and one who will always speak. Do you know the power of his word? Do you know that when he spoke and there was nothing, there was already in Genesis 1 something from his word? You remember that story in John chapter 11? Jesus shows up on the scene four days late. There is Lazarus in the grave. And what does he say? He says, Lazarus, come forth. And at the sound of Jesus' word and voice, Lazarus comes up out of the grave Jesus upon the cross, he says what? It is finished and the veil is torn. You as a sinful human separated from a holy God at the sound of his word, substitutionary atonement is accomplished. And all of the sins of humanity placed upon him and captured in his death to be defeated by the voice of God that will raise the Son of God from the tomb. There's the sound of of creation that I want you to discover in these first 25 verses. But there's more than that. I want you to see the symmetry of creation. Do you see the symmetry of creation? Go back, think about that opponent, that Babylonian creation account. Think about all the chaos. Think of the confusion. Think of the blood. Think of the gore. Think of all the rivalry, all the treachery that I told you just in that little synopsis of that one story that was floating around. And then notice the the coolness, the calmness, the symmetry of creation that we have in these first 25 verses. Notice how on the first day, the second day, and the third day, you have the creation of an empty container. An empty form. And notice how three days later, that there is the filling of that empty form. There is something that is created that is filled. On the first day, the light and the darkness is created, It's empty. Then on the fourth day, the lights of the dark and the night, the sun and the moon, fill the creation on the first day. Notice how on the second day, there's the sea and the sky, but they're empty. Notice how on the fifth day, the fish and the birds fill what was empty on the second day. Notice how on the third day, the fertile earth, empty is filled on the sixth day with land animals and humanity. And next week, we'll talk about Adam and Eve. Notice the first day, it's empty. The fourth day, it's filled. The second day, it's empty. The fifth day, it's filled. The third day, it's empty. The sixth day, it's filled. These empty voids are filled on the Word of God. There's a principle. I mean, it's easy to sort of... I think, over spiritualizes. It's easy to, to make sort of an Easter reference here to three days later, what was lifeless is given life. I, I, obviously, the writer of the book of Genesis would not have had that in mind, but there is a pattern by which God works and God moves in this way. First day to fourth day, the container is filled with light and darkness. The sun and the moon fills it. The sea and the sky are filled with fish and birds. The earth is filled with animals and humans. And so there's a sense in which this is true of your life and in my life post-Genesis chapter 3. So all of us, after the fall of humanity, are created in the image of God. No matter what ethnicity, no matter what racial background that you have, or, or reality that you have, we are all created in the image of God. No matter what country we come from, all of us bear the Imago Day. All of us have a, a dignity stamped upon us by our Creator. But all of us have fallen. All of us are, are empty and void of what really has to fill us to give us earthly satisfaction and eternal life. What do I mean by that? Well, Ephesians chapter 2 says that we are dead in our sins. Colossians chapter 1 says that we are alienated and hostile to a holy God. So all of us in this room are are sort of dead men walking, dead women walking. All of us in this room, are we're on day 1, day 2, day 3 that have to be filled. St. Augustine, in what really is the the first autobiography of, of really human history called the Confessions, he talks about in the Confessions how he longed to fill this sense of void with, well, for him it was pleasure. For him it was the pursuit of being this rhetorician, academic, fame, pleasure, and he feels it, and he feels it, and he comes to this place where he realizes when he takes up and reads from the book of Romans that that really all that he was longing to fill himself with could only be filled by the eternal God. And so he says, our hearts are restless until they find their rest in thee. Do you know that? Do you know you, created by God, are empty and void without God. Now you can do a lot of things in life, but you must be filled with something outside of you to give you eternal life and everlasting joy here on earth. And that comes not from within, but that comes from without. That comes from trusting Christ as our Savior and as our Lord. My my question to you is, have you been filled with what can only quench these earthbound desires that you have that really point to the one that can truly fill us, and that is Christ in salvation. Now, many of you in this room, if not the majority of you in this room, could say yes. At the age of 12, I trusted Christ as my Savior. At the age of 24, I wasn't in a Sheraton Inn, but I was at Vacation Bible School. I wasn't, uh, you know, I didn't grow up in the church, but I had this wonderful person that poured into me. And so we could go back, and you could point to that time. But there's a sense in which the principle of the day one and day two and day three and day four and day five and day six of creation it continues. In our spiritual life. Now what do I mean by that? There's a sense in which we need him to fill us. Not only to save us and what theologians call your justification. But we need to be filled every day in our sanctification. We need to be filled in him and through him to be able to move and to grow in our spiritual life. Jesus would say in Luke chapter 9 that we're called to deny ourselves, to take up our cross and to follow him. Deny ourselves daily. Jesus would say, John chapter 15, Jesus comes back to this theme and he says, I'm the vine, you're the branches. The man remains in me, I in him. He will bear much fruit. We get to verse 6 of John 15 and he says, apart from me, you can do nothing. Well, apart from him, we can't save ourselves. But there's a sense in which apart from him, we cannot grow in joy and patience and in love and joy and hope and peace. All of the fruit of the Spirit, that is something that is far from us in our own strength. So we must be filled with him consistently, continuously to grow. I mean, Paul would come to this and he would say in Romans chapter 12, he says, Stop being conformed to the patterns of this world. I mean, that's the default. Stop being conformed to the patterns of this world, but be transformed in the, oh, King James, be ye transformed. By the renewing of your mind, then you'll be able to test and approve God's will for your life. His good, pleasing, and perfect will. There's some of you that are college students, there's some of you that are young adults, there's some of you that are single, and you're wondering, what is God's will for my life? What is his good, pleasing, and perfect will? And he gives us this pathway that apart from him, we can't adequately know that. But if we're transformed by the renewing of our mind, if we abide in him, he desires to lead us. So the question is, are we being filled with the world or are we being filled by the word? This is a question that all of us actually do answer whether or not we consciously daily answer this so you can't be neutral on this you can't say well I'm just checking out of that you you actually are being filled by the standards the values, the attitudes the priorities, the prejudices of this world or you're being filled by the word of God so which one is it in your life and in my life what are we feeding on what are we feasting on? And have we, can, we, can we stop and reflect to what that does and how that changes all of us that are in this room? Do you remember, like nowadays, documentaries, they have a whole section at Sundance Film Festival documentaries. Or you can go to Netflix and you can see just this host of genre of documentaries but there was a time where that wasn't as prevalent in our society and so so one of the first just real big documentaries that people had a little bit of cultural uh, voice and began to be spread and people got to see it and and talk about it was a documentary from really maybe two decades now by Morgan Spurlock do you remember him he had a documentary called supersize me do you remember that Okay, so supersize me if you didn't watch it. Morgan Spurlock said, For 30 days, I'm going to feast on nothing but the, the culinary gifts to our society of McDonald's. So 30 days, all he could eat were uh, Chicken McNuggets, Hot Cakes, Big Macs, French fries. It's hard to say no to those French fries. I'm going to be honest with you. Uh, those are good. Those are good things. But for 30 days, all he ate was McDonald's. Now, the name came from a part of this experiment, this self-experiment, that any time he went through the drive-thru, any time he went to the counter, and he ordered for those 30 days, that if they said, do you want that supersized, he would have to, by default, say, yes, I want that super uh, supersized. And so you can imagine, after feasting for 30 days, For for every one of your meals on Big Macs and French fries and hotcakes and filet of fish and Chicken McNuggets, what's going to happen? And so 30 days later, he weighs himself and he's 25 pounds heavier. His cholesterol goes from 168 to 225. His blood pressure goes from 130 over 105 to 150 over 90. He wasn't a picture of a healthy human being after 30 days of feasting upon highly processed, high fat, high sugar content processed food. That's not surprising to us. I mean, you don't, you don't have to do a 30-day experiment to figure out that that's probably what's going to happen to you when you eat of the junk food of this world that it would physically affect you. The older I get, the more I'm affected by food. I don't know if you're like this, but when, when I eat something that's really heavy, and especially things with a lot of sugar in them, I'm just out at night. I, I can't even keep my eyes open. It affects me more so now than it did 10 years ago or 20 years ago. And I think all of us could, could say yes, we, we are affected by what we put in our bodies. The old adage is true, even if we ignore it, that we are what we eat. We get this on a physical level, but the truth is that this is a spiritual truth too that we are becoming and we are what we spiritually feast upon and there's some of us in this room that are spiritually malnourished because we're eating consistently of nothing but the junk food of this world And when we feast upon the junk food of this world again and again and again and again, it is not surprising that what becomes the very fabric of us is the agenda of the world, the values of the world, the priorities of the world, the thoughts of this world, because that's what we're feasting upon. Some of you are trying to do this kind of self-help correction things because there there are habits in your life that you say, boy, I need to get rid of that. And you're trying to do it in your strength. And Jesus is is speaking to you, apart from me, you can do nothing. So you see in your life, you see in those that are closest to you, that boy, there's a lot of impatience that categorizes and really describes you. You're just so impatient at work. You're so impatient at home. And so the question needs to be, what are we filling ourselves up with? There's some of you in this room that that know what it's like to to not just normally, not not just ponder things, but to just be so anxious about tomorrow, so unsettled in all of your todays. And the question is, what are we filling up with? There's some of you in this room that know what it's like to be self-absorbed, always a victim, someone is always plotting to wrong us, or someone has wronged us, and we have to ask ourselves, what are we feasting upon? What are we filling up with? There's some of us in this room that know what it's like to be very spiritually lethargic. The last thing in our hopes, the last thing in our desire, is to share our faith with anyone. The last thing that we want to do is to to bow our knees and, and to pray to the God who has created us. The last thing that we want to do is to serve in this church or through this church. And we've got to ask ourselves, what are we filling up upon? What are we feasting on? And there are many of us in this room that know what it's like to have a steady diet of the junk food of the world. And it's not surprising that we look a whole lot more like the world because we have moved away from the Word. And the Word is not shaping us. The Word is not building spiritual muscles in us, changing the very spiritual DNA of us. But we are being transformed by the world. And so the question this morning is, is not has God spoken? Well, he's spoken. And when He speaks, the emptiness of the sky is filled with birds, the empty sea is filled with fish, the empty land is filled with animals, and he is the only one, Dawson, who can fill you with his peace that passes only all understanding. He is the only one in this room. He's the only one who has ever existed who can change your fear into faith. He is the only one who can fill you with his guidance in the midst of confusion. He is the only one who can fill you with holiness instead of impurity. So, my question to me, first and foremost, as your pastor, my question to all of us in this room is what are we feasting upon? Are we feasting upon the world? Or are we feasting upon His Word? Let me just leave you with just some practical steps real quickly. Is the Word of God a priority in your life? It won't accidentally be a priority. Have you set it as a priority? If it is a priority in your life, then you have a plan for the consistent ingestion of God's Word. If you want it to be a priority, then you make a plan to feast upon His Word You say, well, pastor, what kind of plan would that be? Well, there are wonderful Google plans that you can look at. How can I feast upon God's Word? But if you just want to start simply, I think the old adage of Billy Graham and advice to start in John chapter 1 and the next day go to John chapter 2. And the next day, John chapter 3 is a great place to start feasting on His Word as a plan because why? It's a priority in your life. When it's a priority in your life and you have a plan, you, you make a place for it. Oftentimes, just habits come because we have a physical place that we come back to. Sometimes that place can just be your commute in your vehicle, ten minutes where we move away. We slice out this period of time that we're just not going to fill ourselves just with sports talk radio or just with the latest political uh, opinions of the world. But we're going to feast upon His world, uh, on His word, because why? It's a priority. We have a plan. So, we make it a place. It might be going outside in the morning before the kids are up or, or, or the neighbors are scurrying about. And you just go outside on your porch and you're looking into nature. And this is a place that is consecrated. It's a place that you're going to listen to his voice. If everyone, maybe that couch right next to that, that, that lamp at night when everybody's asleep and, and you feast and listen to his word. You have a place because you have a plan. You have a plan because it is a priority and you ponder it. We don't just read the word, but we want to be doers of the word. To be a doer of the word, we just don't scarf it down like we're, we're going between soccer games and we've gone through a drive through and we throw the food back into the back and say, eat real quickly, we got somewhere else to be. We don't just scarf down God's word, but we chew upon it, we ponder it, asking God to shape us and to mold us by His word, not the world. We ponder it because we have a place for it. We have a place for it because we have a plan for it. We have a plan for it because it is a priority in our life. And finally, we, we pray His Word. As we, as we listen to His Word, we listen to Him speak, we, we pray in His Word, through His Word, asking God to shape us to apply His Word, be it John chapter 1 or Genesis chapter 1, to the, to, to the difficulties that we might face in that day at work. The marriage that needs his healing hand. The prodigal who needs to come home. The anxiety that we feel that his word, as we pray through it, it shapes everything that we are going through. We pray his word because we've pondered his word. Because we have a place for his word. Because we have a plan for his word. Why? Because it is a priority in our life. God is not silent. Dawson, the question is, are we listening? Let us pray. Gracious God, thank you that your word is an originating creative word that as you speak, things change. I pray for the person that is far from you this morning, that has never trusted you as Savior and Lord. May they hear your voice speaking, I love you and I have sent my son for you. Trust me as Savior. For those of us that have followed you decades ago or recently ago and months ago, may we hear your word speaking to us that we are to listen consistently, to be word-based, not world based. It is easy for us to get our priorities and agenda from the world and not have that come into any kind of comparison to the Word of God that is our foundation. So may we center ourselves in your Word, not only individually, but as a family of faith this morning. It's in your name, the name that speaks, the name of Christ Jesus that we pray. Amen.